Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of In Our 1990s, the podcast where we're ranking all of the alternative albums of the 90s. And yes, we are still doing that despite the long hiatus we've had. I don't know how long the hiatus seems if you're listening, um, you know, because episodes have come out, but it's been a long time since we recorded. April was a hell month for me, so... I've, I've had a string of them, and by the way, I'm, I'm your host, Natalie, and that, who was just talking about the hell of April is Hadrian. Hello, hello. And uh, yeah, we're back. Um, I'm feeling way better than, than I have for months. Um, it's been a topic of conversation around here lately, but uh, I know you're probably still in the fucking exhausted phase right now. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm self-medicating with some rest and some Pokemon Snap, which came out two days ago, and is not the most exciting video game ever, but it is exactly what I needed. It is just finding the right time to take a picture of a Pokemon, and you know what? I excel at this. And so hopefully we're going to be back on something like a schedule now, because maybe I can uh, actually edit episodes without wanting to die again. It's just been a thing. I, I just... You know, the episodes were there, and I would just sit there staring sadly at them, thinking, this is a thing that I need to do. But guess what? I want to die, so no. Well, I'm glad we're past that part of that. Yeah, yeah, it's, I, I mean, that's, uh, I'm being, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic, say I didn't want to die, but I would have preferred death over editing a podcast most days. I, I get it, I get it. Yeah, so. and I mean, that's why people who make more money than us pay other people to edit their podcasts for them. Yeah, or just, we could just get so good at it that no editing has to happen. Yeah, that, that's the, the goal, and hopefully we will. Yeah, yeah, so um, let's get right into it. We're going to talk about, uh, first First album we're going to talk about this week is Play by Moby from 1999. One of, one of the better selling albums we've talked about. I would argue to say it's probably like the best-selling album we've talked about thus far. Uh, that um, no doubt album um, and Candlebox sold super well. But this is uh, at the time of its like media relevance was the best-selling electronic album of all time. <laughs> yes, yes, in its genre, this is absolutely one of the the best, like a landmark seller. So Moby is a particularly polarizing figure. I'm going to be a little kinder while also being very annoyed as a vegan, having to listen to whenever Moby says some dumb shit on the internet and then all the vegans who aren't that person are like, yeah, I'm not that vegan. Oh my fucking God. And it's very frustrating to exist in that space. Uh, But from an artistic perspective, I kind of get what Moby's going for. He he's a little overwrought. It's a little up its own ass. But he is, at the end of the day, trying to speak to something, which, uh, before we talk about play, I want to talk about the scenario that led to play. So this was, Moby was considering this to be his last album. It was his last venture before he went off to maybe go to architecture school or do something completely unrelated to music because he'd had such a terrible, terrible experience with his album Animal Rights that came out before this that was largely a departure from his electronic sound and was more guitar focused and still in this realm of alternative music that we're talking about, but it was not selling. 
No one wanted to hear it. No one cared. He was opening for Soundgarden and having a miserable fucking time. People were throwing shit at him. And in that headspace, you understand why someone would be like, this is my last one. It's, I'm, I'm done and I'm going to fucking quit if it doesn't sell. And he and the goal for this album was actually very low. It was 250,000 copies for someone who was well no as well known as Moby. That is incredibly, incredibly small. Because he was well known and he, he's one of those... Those people who fame sort of exists in a bubble where it has you have a prominence and an awareness in the people of around of, among people around you, but it doesn't really translate to concrete sales, even if his music's being played in clubs. So, play he recorded in his house in his, well his house it's his uh, his residence in Manhattan. Uh, using samples he had uh, acquired through a uh, Roots and Blues compilation of trying to preserve gospel music. Right, field recordings, basically. Yeah, field recordings. It was this, like, he was introduced to this collection of, of field recordings of, of gospel and Roots music, uh, blues, gospel, and Roots music, and it led him to sampling things rather aggressively, and... This album is a compilation of that, his own original work, and it's just not super upbeat, and it wasn't what he was known for prior to Animal Rights. It was this weird, but it was a return to a sort of style, but Moby has always had a very down-key kind of vibe, and this album definitely has that. But we're talking about this as it was released in 1999, but this album didn't actually start seeing any sort of success until 2000. And that feels weird. This came out at a, at a really weird time for electronic music because, like, throughout the mid to late 90s, like, jungle and drum and bass had been, like, the thing. Mm -hmm. And trip-hop was there, too, but, like, when when I think back to electronic music in the 90s, I think drum and bass like yeah. drum and bass breakbeat jungle whatever like permutation of that super like hyper fast that um, sounds like messiah to me uh, yeah um the amen breaks etc um and and like so many bands like i mean like the obvious one is everything but the girl just went totally into into jungle from being like sort of a folky singer songwriter <laughs> like group um but like every rock band had like breakbeats going at the time and and like just people indie pop groups were working breakbeat into their music and so the late 90s it was kind of like well what comes after this because in some way like drum and bass was an extension of of like the acid house and techno of the early nineties and getting more and more hyper. And of course you have stuff like, you know, happy hardcore and gabber, which wasn't like mainstream at all. Um, so I mean, that stuff was always really niche. And so you kind of had like, where do we go from here? And so one answer to that was down tempo mm -hmm. and Moby really, was exploring that here um, along with uh, Big Beat, which is like what Fatboy Slim was doing, um, which is, is a more like, like the tracks on here that sample the field recordings are very Big Beat, Fatboy Slim kind of stuff. And 
that that style it it wasn't a dead end and and it definitely continued on and still continues on in some ways but like just one thing that I kept saying over and over in my notes is pure moods <laughs> and I mean it's down tempo beats strings like pretty strings piano lines and it it's so of its time and it, and it was a an an attempt to figure out like what comes after jungle and it was like what if it's the exact opposite of jungle like instead of being hyper and um god what is the word i'm looking for like just having so many beats like what if it was what if we slowed everything way the fuck down and came down off the drugs and you know it just sounds like a late night when you're trying to fall asleep after a party <laughs> and it's varying degrees of successful um i am not a fan of much of this album it's it really sounds generic to me for the most part like the stuff with the sampling the field recordings doesn't but like porcelain for example which was one of the two like huge hit singles off of this is just so down tempo inoffensive not really that ambitious just kind of a pretty song but like not pretty in a way that's interesting <laughs> no i i absolutely understand i but if you look at it in the time capsule of the time this came out of nowhere when the with the way that it was sounding like things weren't really sounding a lot like this and that was to they did it a massive disservice when he was trying to you know option it for people to listen to it so animal rights was such a fucking flop for Moby, that people refused to listen to this album. So their response was to market it out commercially. And so it's like, well, we'll license it out to commercials. But they were incredibly selective about the commercials that could use it. And eventually, I think almost every song on the album was optioned off for a licensing deal. Yeah, because it does sound like background music for a commercial that you're not going to pay attention to. But I think that's... This, I found this album very calming at the time that I was listening to it. I mean, I, I so I got this because I liked the song Southside. I was very fond of Gwen Stefani at the time, and I think Southside still functions. It is a little jarring, and it just, it, it's built on a device that doesn't really play well in music now, but because it's very repetitive, and it's very, like wispy sounding in a way that it's like you want those beats to be harder you want it to be more in the four but everything is a little washed out and mellow which is uh something that this album has constantly been fighting uh when Moby first recorded it he was like I hate how this sounds because he did it all on his own in his house and then they had to try to fix it and remix it and I think something got lost in Southside because the version we're listening to on Spotify is yet another remaster of that track and it's still not right and it's weird because <laughs> I listened to yeah, the video. Yeah, that song does sound a little strange. And I don't really know how to describe it. Um, I mean, I guess I kind of thought that like what I'm hearing is what he was going for. That it has kind of a, almost like a an otherworldly kind of feel to it. And I think that's that's to its, that's to its benefit now. But there is something amiss. And I remember that song hitting harder than it did. And it, it well, doesn't. the one that's on the album is not... Gwen Stefani is not involved with the one on the album. It's Moby singing it. No, they're both singing it? it. Oh, really? I couldn't tell She's in the background. She's background vocals. 
Wow. Yeah. No, I couldn't hear. Yeah. Uh, hear yeah. that at all. So yeah, like so that was how it was marketed. It was like movie with Gwen Stefani, and it's like uh, the the video is very dis- very disjointed, and it's uh, clearly on a set and trying to capture emotion and not doing it realistically. And I I kind of vibe with that too. Like I I get the sentiment of this album, which is someone who is in a place that is very uncomfortable, just throwing his talent against a wall and seeing what will happen. And it was a large fucking success and you have to regardless of how you feel about Moby you kind of have to respect that because he just basically put it all on the line and was like I'm just going to do what I feel is right with my music and if it doesn't work I'm done and I absolutely respect that uh, my favorite songs on the album are actually Machete uh, Roll On uh, sorry. Run On I like Honey. I'm sure you probably hate Honey. No, Honey is my favorite song on the album, okay, actually. Okay, great, great. Um, Southside and Seven, I actually quite like. Yeah, Honey and Machete are absolutely my favorites. Honey, I, I hated Honey at first, and the more times I listened to it, the more it started to grow on me. I mean, part of it is that, like, that that sample it's built on is just so catchy mm-hmm. that you it's hard not to eventually get hooked by it. But I think it does the kind of big beat thing better than, I mean, cause that's not a style of music that I like at all. Like I, I have, I don't think I've ever liked a fat boy slim song, for example. <laughs> um, but it, it's that one, that one hit for me eventually. And then machete. I mean, we said this before we started recording, but machete is, just straight up an underworld song like it could not possibly be a bigger ripoff of underworld and i like underworld so so good job yeah just that that song hits in a very like around the time that i was i was listening to this uh brian Molko from placebo had also recorded with uh, dj timo mas and did these like really haunting very fucked up songs and machete falls right in line with that and for a weird way, Moby starts sounding like uh, Jarvis Cocker vaguely uh, doing relaxed muscle by the when the the actual like part of Machete hits. You're just like, oh, it gets a little harder. And then I just like that. I don't know. I, I didn't have that that view of it then, but having that view of it now, I was very amused. Yeah. So another issue that this album has for me. Um, is that it's it's a real it's a real philosophy of Momus in that it sounds like it started with this really cohesive concept and then it got away from him. Yeah. Because the the blues sample stuff is I mean that is a very cohesive idea of I'm I'm going to sample field recordings and put them over like trip hop beats or you know big beat kind of stuff there's a lot of tricky on this album too like i that's another thing that keeps popping up in my notes is damn this is ripping off tricky damn this is ripping off massive attack um but yeah that's like a coherent idea and then the album has 18 tracks and the last seven have absolutely nothing to do with that concept (laughs) and not all of the first 11 do either but uh, quite a few of them do work in the field recording samples even though the like stylistically the music is kind of all over the place. Um, I mean, again, there's a really strong EP of like fat boy slim sings the blues in here. 
but then it's like, and here's my underworld ripoff and I'm going to experiment with down tempo and trip hop and I'm going to sing on some of it. And it, it's just, it's so all over the place, which is fine. I mean, I, I don't think it's, there is like a mobiness to all of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is, <clears throat> I'm sure that's only because like, I'm aware of him as a person to some extent, or at least the image he puts out there of himself as this like boring guy who is really, really pompous. And that's what a lot of this music is. Um, it's music for the graphic designers I worked with when I was a graphic designer who I couldn't stand. Um, that's that's fair. But like, I'm, I don't hate it. I don't hate everything about it. Like Honey is really, really good. Machete is good. The down tempo stuff is all fine. And some of it is like, when it's not just straight up ripping off. I mean, there's, uh, which song is it? Um, Rushing is just like, it's protection by Massive Attack without Tracy Thorne singing it. Yeah. I, it, it's it's like practically the same song. And then, like I said, Machete, even though I like that song a lot, is just Underworld. Um, but later in the album, some of the, the last, some of those last seven songs that are like completely nothing to do with the rest of the album are like it, it like looks forward to like what gold frap would do like where it's like faulty guitars but then with these really atmospheric synths that kind of sound like air mm-hmm. um so i mean so that's like that's the place to me where the album is n- not necessarily it's at its best but like definitely at its most interesting because that's something that was like not really out there yet I'm sure somebody can point to somebody who did it before Moby, but like Everloving is just straight up a gold frap song. Oh yes, absolutely. And, and like, you know, several years before gold frap would do it. So pretty sure that they listened to, or she listened to this album and got well, some inspiration from well, this, it. This album did like gangbusters by the time that it finally like hit its stride. And some of it was being afraid of how to market it. Some of it was people being afraid of trying to market Moby because everyone thought he was a bit of a dick and couldn't make good music. And Animal Rights is not good. Don't listen to Animal Rights. Outside of all of his problems, I understand the artistic struggle is happening underneath play. And it was an album we had to we had to do. It, it is a closure of a century. And maybe I should have done it later in this podcast history, but I feel that this this album is right on the bubble of what being stressed about what a new millennia was going to be. And so he was reaching very far back into something that sounded fresh yet old. And it's, I don't know. I think it, I think it functions. I listened to this album obsessively when I was younger. It was very, always when I was writing, when I was doing homework, this was the thing that was on the background. Because it's good for that. It's good background music. I'm not, that doesn't, but that doesn't knock it. That doesn't made, mean it's not a, a decent album. If some of those tracks are forgettable or they meld into one another. I think it functions as a testament to someone's artistic frustration. Yeah. And, and it is... Um, it's zeitgeisty in that like I said earlier, people were trying to figure out what's next for electronic music. And this was absolutely a, a direction. A lot of it went and I'm sure in part because of this album and its success, but I do think there was, I mean, there's enough of trip hop in it that obviously like those ideas were out there. Um, it, but this kind of 
redirected those ideas into, I mean, to be honest, into something wider. <laughs> it, yeah. it took Massive Attack and their actual like hip hop influences and kind of made it into like, but what if we made it music for like commercials for cars or something? <laughs> But that wasn't the intention going into it. And like, I've been trying to hold back saying, you know, like, it's kind of, it's kind of sus to begin with that, like, the concept of the album is what if I take recordings of all these, like, uh, seminal black artists and, and put my big white face on, on yeah. it. And, like, I mean, that does not invalidate it, but it is, like, it's hard not to for that to stand out just glaringly at this point, because these are, I mean, it's one thing to sample like a professional musician. It's another thing to sample some random person who a guy walked up to with a tape recorder and he was like, probably not getting any money out of any of this. Yeah. So. Yeah, no. And that's something that wouldn't be as readily, readily marketable now and so probably some white guy wouldn't do i mean oh no guy, white guys would absolutely do it but it, but we're gonna actually give them shit for it because they should get shit for it and i do think Moby should get shit for it for that aspect of it uh I, I'm, I'm when i'm when i'm defending this album i'm defending it from an overall like presentation piece but i am completely 100 percent on board for any and all crit criticisms levied against it and moby because he deserves it and should face it. Yeah, and and again, I don't think that that invalidates the album. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here saying like "Honey" is the best song on the album, and that's you know built on a sample of a black woman singing the blues. So, you know, it doesn't mean there's no artistic merit to it. It's just like it's more just like a funny observation of like goddamn, imagine this album coming out now. Oh yeah, no, this would not. This would not. Notice Moby hasn't really released an album since. Has has he not? What, I, I mean, so. is he? I assume to some extent he can live off the royalties of like porcelain being such a huge hit. Yeah, because a lot of it, it's kind of surprising how many people like can just you know they have their one big hit and live the rest of their lives like fairly comfortably off of it. But I think he does. Some, I, th I like, thought he soundtrack. was still putting. A, yeah, I thought he was still doing something. I just I, I have never given any fucks whatsoever about anything moby said or did so oh, yeah. <laughs> i don't I'm, follow I'm, him <laughs> i'm not committed to moby in any way shape or form i just think this album is is worth listening to and worth talking about and i am not looking forward to the discussion we're about to have about <laughs> ranking it uh i mean i'm i don't hate it so i'm not like gonna be like this goes at the bottom of the list but like just hit me with something and i'll see if it goes above something i absolutely can't stand to put it above all right um 25 um I actually think I th it should be higher on the list, but I'm, I'm being yeah. Miserable. I think that's too high, just based on how boring I found it. Um, like it's the best-selling electronic electronic album of all time. Yeah, it's the the one that's sticking for me. I mean, obviously, Anxiety by Fei Wong is something I like love to death, but that album is like has zero influence <laughs> so I, i'm not gonna fight too hard about that but like i think putting it above tragic kingdom is is like like it shouldn't happen 
but that's I know that's a pretty tragic kingdoms at 30. I mean, so that would put this five spots above that album, which I think is like superior to this in every way. I mean, I'm willing to put it just below tragic kingdom. Um, yeah. So yeah, if we put it at 31, uh, I mean, this has, a sp- I, I don't know if you, if you want to make a case for it going like right above tragic kingdom, I, I would be okay, more okay with that. But like that just stands out as like, this album should not be five spots above Tragic Kingdom. No, and I agree with that assessment. Uh, I think it should be this in this part of the list because it is... It's very important in terms of sales. But also, in I think, in broader influence because, like, every commercial sounds like a Moby song now. Like, it, it's... Yeah. It has a, it has a cultural resonance that is hidden... It definitely, the the early 2000s definitely did sound like this album a lot. Yeah, no, it it, it, it had a, a firm hold on the way that production was considered. And, and I think sampling was considered, too. And so it's, Fatboy Slim had probably more direct influence over that, but this very much came up on the back end of that and was like, no, you should to- definitely be sampling things. And so it's I'm I'm fine at like thirty one. Okay, yeah, I I can I'm I'm much happier because I think that. it is overall better than that Harvey Danger album. Uh, yeah, probably. I I don't like it as much, but but also that's not a fight worth having. Okay, well we'll add that one to the list, and we'll come back for our second album of the week. Uh, stick around for Joy by the Sugar Cubes. We are back for our second album this week, and this one comes from 1993. It is the final album by the Sugar Cubes called Stick Around for Joy. Just big ol' sperms all over the cover of this album. (laughs) And And it is kind of a, by Sugar Cubes standards, it's a real sexual album. Um... So the Sugar Cubes, of course, are the band that gave us Bjork, um, and... By this time, they were, we talked about this when we talked about uh, Debut by Bjork, that she was totally done with this band by this time. Um, she was very obviously the star. There there wasn't a great deal of like, it, there wasn't another like just soaring breakout talent in the Sugar Cubes. Like they're, they're a good band, but our Orn was not going to have the career that <laughs> Bjork was going to have. And she was tired of rock music and wanted to make electronica. And so the band broke up after this album. And I think we talked about this also on the debut episode. But um, it, she, Bjork said later in an interview that part of why the band, the other part of the, why the band broke up was her just not be, her heart not being in it anymore, but also that they all really liked in our Orn as a person, but we're like, this dude's singing is like ruining this band <laughs> and, that is a and no one statement. wanted to tell him that. And so instead she was just like, I want to go have a solo career, which was true, but also like letting him down easy of like, 
not just being like, dude, you suck and you ruin every song when you start singing. And I don't think that that's as bad on this album as you do, not compared to previous albums, but it's it's a problem. <laughs> oh, no, there are songs where I'm just like, why is this dude singing? Like, literally every time he started singing, I was like, why is this dude singing? I don't I haven't really listened to the Sugar Cubes. This is my particular music blind side or blind spot. And uh, yeah, so I'm sitting here on the on our sofa just just listening to music while I play Pokemon Snap. And I'm like, why is this guy becoming the Icelandic dude from the B-52s? Mm-hmm. Like, why is this happening? He this- is very much the Icelandic Fred Schneider, except that, like, instead of people being like, oh, I love that part where Fred Schneider's like, love shark baby! It's like, oh, god damn it, this guy's singing again. Well, yeah, because so Fred Schneider's voice is done in a way that, like, that is an accent and a good part of the song. Like, his his vocals are hammy and campy, and it's fine because the song is designed around it. And the and the Beef to Two songs where his, like, particular camp is not required, he's not singing. Or he's not singing very much. He's only adding an accent. Or, yeah, or he just sings. Like, yeah. that's the problem with... with- and and I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but Einar Orn, he doesn't just sing. He does, like, spoken word raps. Like, if he just sang, it might be all right. But it's the fact that he is, like, doing, like, jazz hands, like, spoken word shit that's always so bad. You, you can almost feel Bjork cringing with her voice. Like, that, that's how bad it gets on some of these songs. Yeah, so, okay, so the song aptly titled Hit on this album it was is the band's biggest hit. It's the best song on this album. Or, okay, it's, it's at least... I'm hungry, wants to talk to you about that. Oh, God, no, I've been thinking. Leash Called Love and, and Walkabout are both, like, super fucking awesome. And I love them a lot. I, I might like both of those songs a little bit more than Hit, but Hit is great. Hit was the first Sugar Cube song I ever heard because it was a hit. <laughs> it, it got to number one on the modern rock charts. And even in Arkansas, that song got like pretty decent, a pretty decent amount of airplay. Um, and so, you know, it's the song about, you know, I'm falling in love again. I didn't want to. And so like the bridge is like him being like, I said, ouch, this really hurts because you know what the song's called hit. It's dumb. It's stupid. And someone should have said this doesn't need to be in any song. <laughs> yeah, no, it's entirely a band. It's like, no, he's a really good guy. But if we tell him that his music sucks, he's going to have a real bad time. We don't need to do that to him. <laughs> and sometimes you need to find a way to tell someone that perhaps they are overextending themselves creatively. Yeah. And, in fact, and put in those words. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, and like the the thing is on the other thing he contributed and this is so fitting to how intrusive his his vocal parts are is he also would play trumpet. And it's just <sighs> like that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And and it like so the sugar cubes are like from an American standpoint, it, there's always the trouble of like the wacky Europeans who, who like, they're just such aliens and we don't understand them. 
And you have to guard against that if you want to be taken seriously. <laughs> and he just like barrels headlong into it. Like Bjork would write some like weird, wacky lyrics, especially like if, listen to the first Sugar Cubes album, Life's Too Good. Uh, there's a song called Fucking and Rhythm and Sorrow. And it's just Bjork singing about when she came home and there was a naked man in her apartment. And so she fed him strawberry cake. And it is it works. It, I mean, it's wacky and it kind of sounds like the Ren and Stimpy theme song musically. <laughs> but it's like this is a song by a kind of weird band. It's not it doesn't come off as this is Euro trash. <laughs> like, it doesn't sound like rednecks, you know. And like at their worst, they do sound sound like rednecks. I mean, not musically, but like it has that just utterly clueless Europeans trying to do something they don't understand and failing at it. <laughs> Which I know is like super American chauvinist of me, and and I'm a horrible person for saying it. But like, there they they made it work on at their best. But it was usually Bjork who made it work. Yeah. And by this album, that shit was just not working. And Bjork wasn't even trying to do it anymore. Like, Bjork's lyrics on this album are generally serious. Or not serious in, like, dark, but serious, like, I am taking this seriously and writing a pop song that can be well-received. And does not need an Icelandic rapper doing wacky spoken word underneath it absolutely does not and that's that's that that is the main problem with this album it just does not hit for me in any way but he's also like massively like i mean like I, this may have been the compromise or like a producer stepping in to just try to salvage it but like also on the first album he i mean he has like lead vocal performances on a few songs and he gets one lead vocal here. Mm-hmm. And his his lead vocals on the first album are all like really bad, too. Well, you made me listen to Traitor before we came and did the show. Yeah. And I agree with your assessment of that being like, if he had stuck with stuff like that, it would have been way better. And so he does have some talent for this. It's just how it was being done inside this band was just not great. Yeah, and there's a song, and I don't think I put it in my notes. I can't remember which one. It might be Walkabout. Um, there's one where he does something closer to to what he does in Trader, where he just he talks, and it's not wacky, and he's not doing funny inflections, and it's like fairly quiet in the mix, and it's fine. Yeah, but also. You wouldn't miss it if it wasn't there. So, like, that's the best he gets on this album is, like, you wouldn't miss it if it wasn't there. Yeah, many of these songs would be much better if, if his vocals were not so intrusive or there at all. And because it's like, yeah, just let Bjork do, do Bjork things. Oh, no. Because fucking Bjork is so good on this album. Leash Called Love is one of my favorite, like, Bjork vocal performances, period. Like, including her solo stuff. I mean, she just fucking belts that song out, and it's so good. I I I didn't really read all of the track titles before we got into this, but I'm I'm very approving of the track title "Hetero Scum." <laughs> yeah, and if you read the lyrics to that, that title doesn't make any sense. So, so I'll just let the title <laughs> do its own talking. Uh, yeah, 
And and Waterbout is great. And Waterbout led me to the single best genius annotation I have ever found. Um, Waterbout is is just a song about fucking like it's 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 like it's metaphorical, but it's about fucking. There's one of the lines is there's a hole and there's a stick, there's a cove and there's a ship that goes in and out of the harbor. Mm-hmm. The annotation for that on Genius is by gaming dude, and it just says sex, spelled S-E-C-K-S. Such a good, it makes me want to, like, if I had more time, I would go through the lyrics for every song we do every week and find the best genius annotation. (laughs) But occasionally you stumble across one like that and it just fucking makes your day. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to do that now. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, I mean, to me, Leash Called Love, Walkabout, and, uh, and Hit are, like, the songs on this album, though, and, like, I think it's got a real saggy middle. Uh, Lucky Night is like kind of bad. That's the one where it's just like where they're just listing things mm-hmm. like back and forth, front and back. <laughs> that's like that one's that's my least favorite song in the album. Um, Happy Nurse has a cool beat. It's the one that's real circusy, and like I really like the beat, but the song just doesn't do much. So you like I'm Hungry a lot. So I, what's uh, what? Tell me about that. I don't know what it was. It just hit right. I, it, I mean, it's, it's gothy. That might be why. I think I think Bjork's voice is very conducive to a goth music style, and uh, I wish she did more of that. I think there's some real like when the Cure does pop songs energy on some of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Leash Called Love to me kind of sounds like the Exploding Boy, which is like a Cure B side, but it's like the best song ever. Um, like it's super upbeat for the cure. Yeah, and I and I, I'm hungry kind of sounds a little bit like it. I mean, I'm hungry is like the darkest song on this album. Of course, I picked that out as the one that I like. Right, but which puts it in line with like close to me or something, you know? Like, oh, yeah. a, one of the cure's poppiest songs. Yeah, and, and like I don't know, it just stood out for me as like a like yeah, I could I would put that on a playlist. So sometimes when I listen to albums that we do for a show, I think about would I ever want to listen to one of these songs again. And that was the song that stood out to me. Like, I would listen to this song again. Oh, to see, I listen to Leash Called Love and Walk About like at least once a week. Like, you like the, the I love those songs Bjork so much. More than I, do. <laughs> I do. And like when Bjork just fucking belts it out, like, it's like she gets criticized for not being that great a singer. Like, I mean, she like she does her Bjork thing and she does it well, but she can't actually sing. But like. You fucking haven't listened to those songs if you don't think she can sing. Oh, she can sing. She just chooses to do her own thing. Like that's fine. Like, I like I I say a lot of stuff, and whenever I I criticize Bjork's music, it's never coming from a place where, like that that woman can't sing. It's not that she absolutely can. She has all of the tools and the pipes and the ability. She does exactly what she wants to do with it, and I respect the fuck out of that. I don't have to like it though. Yeah, and and I get. I mean, there's a lot of Bjork's music that I don't like. I'm not, like, a Bjork super fan. I think most of her albums are, like, you know, there's a few songs that I latch onto. I mean, except for something like Utopia, where it's, like, you have to listen to that as a as a conceptual piece. Like, 
there's not really stuff on there that you're going to pull out and be like, I just want to listen to this one song off of Utopia. Um, but for the most part, and that, that extends to the sugar cubes. Like, I think this is, I think stick around for joy is really good. And I think it's like their most consistent album. Like people again, like because of birthday and motor crash being so such big, like underground hits, people like tend to think of the first album as they're like brilliant, the peak, but like that album has a bunch of fucking songs on it, and like most of them are not good. <laughs> like, like go back and listen to Delicious Demon or Cold Sweat or Cowboy, and tell me that like everything on the first Sugar Cubes album is brilliant. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's not all birthday. Yeah, and I think this album would be way more successful without the the spoken word element yeah it's a massive detractor in my mind of how this album places yeah and i mean all of their albums would have been better without like again i think traitor is like the only song where if he if nr orn weren't on it i would it like that song wouldn't be anywhere near as good i mean essentially he does the lead vocal on that song bjork sings the chorus and he talks the verses but like that song is made because of that interplay, but it's the only one. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is just not another Sugar Cube song where I give a single fuck what he's doing, and it does detract on a lot of them. So when I was looking up stuff on the Sugar Cubes, there was like this thing is like their name is a reference to doing LSD. I was like, it could also just be Sugar Cubes. It, it could be that they are like a upbeat pop group who called themselves the Sugar Cubes. Yeah, apparently among their fan base this is a, a, a hotly con- like con- like debated subject of like, is their name a, a, a reference to using LSD? I'm like, I just assumed uh, they the were just... Who the fuck cares? I know. What a dumb just, thing to have a debate about. I know, I just thought I'd bring it up because I thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah. I, no, that had never entered my mind. I, I, who gives a fuck? But it, it's, you know what did enter my mind once? This is totally off topic, but when it hit me that I didn't know whether the Smiths was a reference to the name Smith or the profession Smith. And it, it is the name. Morrissey said the idea was to come up with the most like boring anonymous name possible. That checks out. That's but one Morrissey. day it did hit me that like, wait, are they like the blacksmiths? No. They could have been the Smiths. They were definitely smithing some tunes. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm cutting that. I'm cutting all. I'm cutting you out of this podcast. It's just going to be me talking to myself. I'm just going to leave long gaps for where, where you would have been. Because I made an, an exemplary pun. I'm going to go sleep with a friend tonight. Jesus. <laughs> Can't be in the house with you anymore. Oh my God. Okay. Um, well, so now the hard part of ranking this, because it's definitely a flawed album. It's a flawed album that has three songs that I fucking adore on it, but I have to be objective. Um, which for me probably puts it around 43-ish. That would be Below Nowhere by Ride and Above When and Venetus by Bruce Less. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair place because I think this album is deserving of a higher of a higher place on the list, and this almost guarantees that it will stay around a, a semi high point in the list for a while. And yeah, I think that's fine. Okay. I don't. I don't. Not. 
I I was not offended by this album in any way, and I was just let down by parts of it that are inherent to the conflict in the band. And like I think that has to be factored into where it ranks, and it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, initially I was like, this goes in the 20s, but then the more I listened to it, the more I kind of realized how much my love of those three songs. Also, we didn't mention Gold, but I think Gold's really good, the first track. Yeah, Gold's pretty good. Um, it, It's very like, York in your face, and you're like, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, that would have been the fourth single for me. They put out Vitamin, the what? one with in our Orn as the doing the lead vocals. Of but that was one of the singles off the album. Because he was still gonna beat that horse. Yeah, because Hit was the first single and the huge hit, and then Leash Called Love, obviously, and Walkabout, obviously, and then what's the last single gonna be? And that was they went with that. Uh, I'd have I'd have gone with fucking Chihuahua over that. Oh yeah, Chihuahua. The their it, what if an Icelandic band did Atomic Dog, the song that closes the album. Yeah. No. Um, no, thank you. It's, it's not as good as Atomic Dog. You might be surprised to find out. <laughs> um, okay, so that's 43 is what we said? Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, and so quick correction here. Um, as I was putting this on the list, I noticed I, I my notes said 1993. Stick Around for Joy came out in 1992. So automatic correction on that one. And I'm just saying it here because I don't want to go back and record over myself saying it at the beginning of this segment. <laughs> it's a, it, like, hey, when we're talking about, like, dates that sound similar, it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, what happened is I just rewrite my notes on the same file every week. And I copied this over Campbellbox, which came out in 1993. And I didn't change the date. So that's the problem. All right. Um... So let's take a look at our top 10 this week, in case you might have forgotten what the top 10 is. Uh, number 10 is Plague Mass. Uh, yeah. Number 10 is Plague Mass by Diamanda Gallus. Number 9 is Slanted and Enchanted by Pavement. Number 8 is Superstition by Susie and the Banshees. Number 7 is Spooky by Lush. Number 6 is Very by the Pet Shop Boys. Number 5 is The Philosophy of Momus by Momus. Number 4, 69 Love Songs by the Magnetic Fields. Number three, Liberation by The Divine Comedy. Number two, Get Lost by The Magnetic Fields. And number one is Nonsuch by XTC. If you want to see our complete rankings, you can go to bit.ly slash nr1990s. That's bit.ly slash nr1990s. You can also check us out on Spotify where you can hear all the episodes of the podcast. Or you can listen to our playlists with every album that we have ranked so far. And what are you going to add to that playlist next week, Adrian. Much to Natalie's chagrin, oh, I'm right. bringing Births, Marriages, and Deaths by the Tiger Lilies, their debut album from 1994. I'm going to bring something you hate next week, and this isn't retaliatory. This is just, I thought of this before we started recording. Um, I'm going with, uh, well, so I've been thinking a lot about what might alternative rock in the 90s have looked like if grunge didn't break. And so, in by way of investigating that, next week I'm going to bring uh, Ritual De Lo Habitual by Jane's Addiction. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure you fucking hate Jane's Addiction. I don't, actually. Bitch! I thought, Surprise! I thought you had said at one point that you, like, 
they made you want to like tear your fingernails off or something. Maybe it was something older, but like that's in the the the, the area of where I'm like, yeah, Jade's addiction's fine. So, okay. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, that's it for us this week. Also, I've started trying to get caught up on getting the episodes up on YouTube, which I wasn't as far behind on that as I thought I was. the 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 last one I had uploaded was episode 18. I thought I quit way before that. So I got three more episodes put up. Cool. Um, I'm just scheduling them. I was scheduling them to come out one per day to get caught up instead of just dumping them all on there at once and making everyone who followed all like 300 people who follow me on YouTube unsubscribe. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I'm going to try to keep doing that. Um, it's, it's an easy thing to do as I'm working from home is to just have videos rendering on on my other computer. All right, well, we'll be back next week with a real fucking clash of musical styles and uh, going to try to keep it on track for, for the foreseeable future now that I don't want to sleep all day. <laughs> <laughs>